0: Good morning, Lighthouse Church. Hope that you guys are doing well. Had a good week. We are going to dive in here for just a moment, but let me go ahead and pray with us before we begin. Father God, we are so grateful that we get to gather as family, both in person and online. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill this place and to guide our time. May, may the posture of our hearts be glorifying to you as we sing these words that are more than just words. They are the cry of our heart. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
1: you this morning God you are the unstoppable God no matter what evil tries to rise up you rule and you reign we exalt you today heaven Let us worship our King. Focus our hearts on You, beautiful Savior. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to the world know there is hope and there is victory
0: i'm just saying apparently the resurrection started on this side of the room and it was it's gonna make it over here eventually i i keep thinking one of the things and, and i need to be one of the casualties of covid has been that it's really easy to get into a bit of a, a, I'm watching worship happen online, I'm watching it from the couch and all that kind of stuff, and one of the areas that I am praying for our church that we will continue to grow in is that we will begin to enter into worship as worshipers. And by the way, I need to be real cautious here because the last thing I want to do is try to motivate with shame. That's the last thing I want to do here. But I do want to say this. Guys, when we are going into a time of worship, what we're doing is we're focusing on Christ. And we're saying, you are our Lord, and we want to focus on you regardless of what's around us. And I don't want us to just try to pretend that we we feel something that we don't. My prayer, however, is that the Holy Spirit would fall on this place and we would be like David who doesn't care what other people around us think and that we are fully in. And if that means falling on our knees, if that means raising our hands and standing up, if that means just closing our eyes and engaging. And by the way, I don't know what's going on in your hearts, but I recognize there's this really big part of me. It's real easy to just sit back and watch. We had a year and a half of practice of that. And we are now in the process of practicing muscles that have been kind of lying dormant for a year. And so, please do not, as we enter into worship throughout today and over the coming weeks, please do not pretend for me, okay? Because you're not performing for anyone. But I would encourage you, to allow yourself to enter into worship. And sometimes that means standing up, and sometimes that means kneeling down because our body posture often will lead our heart posture. Okay, that's all I got to say about that. We're moving on, all right? I love you. And for those of you, by the way, who trickled in, because it's really, it's one last thing. I'm going to say, dang it, I just keep, (laughs) it's been a little bit, and I missed you guys. One of the things that is always kind of laughable about doing church in southern california is that when worship begins there's four people sitting down and typically they're all visitors so you're like hi yeah we actually do have a church they'll be here eventually and then worship ends and all of a sudden it's like oh there you are right but guys the reason that we spend time in the beginning engaging is not simply to have a buffer for those of you who are, are dropping your kids off across the street or because you got a late start the reason we have that is it's a time to prepare our hearts. So I would just ask you, for your own sake and for the sake of our, our, our family here, make an effort, make a concerted effort to join us when we begin so that we can together storm the gates of heaven and, and, and together raise one voice. That's all I got to say. I'm done. I hope you didn't feel shame because that was not my goal, all right? Hi, it's good to see you guys. I missed you for the last couple of weeks. Um, Being on, everybody's like, how was your vacation? I go, we didn't go on vacation. We went on a trip because we took our kids. Vacation is when we leave the kids home. (laughs) We had a great trip. We saw a lot of stuff. We kept asking our kids, you guys having fun? They're like, no, we want to go home. And so that's why we kept taking pictures and posting it is so that later on, a decade from now, they'll look back on it when they're past those pesky teen years and go, oh, our parents actually cared about us enough to give us memories that we didn't appreciate at the time, but now we can vicariously appreciate them through the pictures that they took. So that's why we were doing that. And I'm grateful uh, for those of you guys that stepped up. I'm grateful for Russell. I'm grateful for for Pastor Jeff. I'm grateful for um, Josh last week, the three guys who stepped up. So thankful for them. They did a fabulous job. But I am really excited to be with you guys today, jumping back in. Before we do that, I want to let you know of two things. The first thing is this Friday from 4 to 9 p.m., we had the second of our gatherings at the beach. We're going to change beaches because apparently we had a tough time finding parking down in Newport last week. So this coming Friday, we are going to be meeting where Brooker Street T-bones right into Huntington Beach. That is a good place if, you just, if you've got kids or parents you want to drop off and you're just going to kind of peel out and drop them off and go. There's a nice little turnaround. If you want to park there, you can pay to park. Or you can park and walk in, whatever it takes. But from 4 to 9 p.m., we're going to be doing a barbecue. Last time we had a great time playing Three Flies Up and going in the water, uh, just hanging out, eating way more s'mores than are healthy for us. Um, so I hope you'll join us on Friday. Second thing I want to let you know about. As we are coming out of COVID, one of the things that we kind of let slide over this last year is we didn't have children's ministry across the street. But now, as we are coming back, we've got a lot of kids starting to show up. And so it has been really fun to see that community across the street growing. But toward that end, we need help to love on investing in them. And I will say this, before COVID, it was a huge sacrifice to volunteer across the street, because you didn't get to participate in worship, you didn't get to be over here, and there was really no, all you could do was listen to it afterwards. But now that we have the live streaming, you can participate after the fact, and I will tell you that there is no greater investment of your time than in investing in the next generation of the church. So if you are looking for a place to plug in, I can think of no better place for you to plug in than with our kids across the street one weekend a month. If that's you or if you're thinking maybe, um, I want to encourage you to go in the back and there's some flyers on the back table and you can find out some more information about it. That's all I got to say about that. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John 11. (coughs) So as you're turning there... Uh, Do you guys have a good Fourth of July? Amen. Have a nice, safe, and sane time. It, it was fun for me because the, I, it, got, it was like a wonderful, glorious day. I got to be at church for the first time in several weekends with our church family, and then I got to go over to my brother Mark's house. We had a pool party over there, and I got to see my brother Joe, who was visiting t- from Taiwan. I hadn't seen him since before COVID started, so got to hang with him and his family. Then we got to go and and watch this big fireworks show. So it was just a wonderful, glorious day. And then around 9.30 that night, as we're in the middle of watching this fireworks show that we had traveled uh, um, to go see, we get a call from my mother-in-law. Apparently, she was at her own church communities kind of gathering. They were hanging out with some friends. And um, somebody in the crowd of of 70-year-olds was lighting ground-blooming flowers and throwing them across the ground. My mother-in-law was sitting in a chair watching and one of these ground-blooming flowers came right between her feet and when she looked down and realized there was a firework at her feet, she threw herself out of the chair to try to get away from it and in the process really hurt her hip. So she was calling us to say, hey, listen, I've hurt my hip. I can't drive. Can you come pick me up? Yes, we'll come get you. We'll be there in a little bit. We're thinking, can we finish watching the fireworks show before we go? All right, let's go. So we start walking back to the car. It took us about a half an hour to get our car to get to her. When we get there, she's now been sitting in a cold metal chair out in a parking lot for half an hour, and her, lip, her hip has locked up completely. So we try to help her up out of the chair. And, and there's other people. They didn't abandon her or anything, but they were just waiting for us to get there. We try to help her up out of the chair, and she literally just starts going into spasms on her hip. And, and she's like, just get me home so I can sleep this off. And we're going, we don't think you're going to be able to sleep this off. So we finally talk her into going to Hogue. We get to Hogue. Five hours later, we get the emergency room, right? It's never quite the emergency that you think it is. Um, we, we finally get x-rays, and we find out, lo and behold, that she has shattered her hip. And she's going to need surgery. And, of course, then all of the stages of grief start, right? You begin with denial. (laughs) No way. I mean, it was just a little fall. How could she possibly have broken her hip? And that gives way very quickly to the what ifs, right? Dang it. What if she just hadn't gone that night? What if I had been there to catch her? What What if the Y chromosome did not demand that when you're holding a firework, you have to throw it as opposed to just lighting it and walking away? What if? And maybe that's just my Y chromosome. But thankfully, I wasn't the one who threw the firework. Needless to say, I'm not sharing this with you because I want to complain. Because she has just gone through a, she had a hip replacement surgery on Tuesday and she's now in recovery. I'm not sharing this with you to complain, but simply to, to remind us that we live in a broken world. And things happen to us that are totally Ridiculous, and sometimes they just seem absolutely meaningless. And this, by the way, is just one of a, over a dozen reminders of the, the sin warped world that we live in that I had this week. I mean, Pastor Jeff spent some time in the ER because of uh, an, an enlarged epiglottis from an, a, a throat thing. I, I had a head cold that kind of slammed me right in the middle of the week. Um, you know, we just, there was just a ton of stuff we had. Uh, Joyce, straight, who, who went into the hospital because of some seizures, and she's doing much, much better right now. We have somebody that is close to one of our, our, our church family who committed suicide. I mean, I'm telling you, there were many, many reminders this week that we live in a broken world, and sometimes you, you look at those things and go, this seems, A, meaningless. B, this is going to leave a mark. Like, this isn't just one of those things that's a bump in the road and you move on this is going to cause a lifetime limp. This is going to leave scars. This is going to leave scars on my heart because of broken down relationships. Walked with some guy who was served papers this week and divorce. right? We're reminded that we live in a broken world and there's a part of us, some of us, who have bought into a, a, a gospel belief that if you follow Jesus, he will protect you from the brokenness of this world. He'll protect you from pain. Weeks like this tend to fly right in the face of that. And I simply want to suggest to you that if you have carried in with you this morning an interpretation of the gospel that suggests that God will protect you from all discomfort if you follow him, that he will, that he is concerned about your health, Your wealth and that you prosper, that that actually is more the gospel of the 21st century America than it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is more a reflection of the environment in which we are being raised than it is a reflection of the message of the Bible. In fact, a little bit later on in John's gospel, Jesus will warn his disciples, listen guys, in this world, You will have trouble, not maybe, you will have trouble, but you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world. In other words, your bodies are gonna break down. There's going to be times where it's not just somebody else's mortality that you're reminded of, it's your own mortality that you're facing down, the specter of your own death. And there's going to be moments where your best laid plans fall, crumbled at your feet, and you're just gonna be going, God, why? know that in this world you're going to have trouble. But I've overcome the world because of what he was about to do on the cross. The brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. And that's the hope that we have in him. And that leads us to the passage that we're going to be looking at in John chapter 11. Because we are not the first generation of Christ followers, of people who recognize our shepherd's voice and follow him that have carried with us an expectation that our shepherd will protect us from pain. In fact, who we're going to be introduced to today, they may be very familiar, and it's these two sisters, Martha and her sister Mary, um, they were a couple of gals that were part of Jesus' flock. They, They heard his voice, they recognized him, they followed him, and yet when their brother Lazarus gets sick, and he's on the precipice of death, Their first thought is, this doesn't make any sense. Where's Jesus? we got to get Jesus. So, let's go ahead and begin reading in John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We're going to hear that part of the story in the next chapter, in chapter 12. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews who were there were trying to stone you, and yet you're going to go back like, this is not a good idea. Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. This is just a euphemism for the fact that Lazarus has died. Of course, they don't get that. They take him, at, they take him literally, so they go, well, you know. They, they replied, Lord, if he sleeps, won't he get better? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but now let's go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go that we might die with him. And upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now we're going to pause there. We're going to read a little bit more this morning, but I want to begin by beginning to digest what we've already looked at. The first thing I want us to recognize here in John 11 is that John assumes that his readers know who these two gals are, Martha and her sister Mary. He assumes that they kind of are aware of the story that's going to come in chapter 12 of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. But we are also probably pretty familiar with this, this couple, right? These sisters, Martha and her sister Mary, were gals who hosted Jesus in their home when he came to Bethany. They were the ones where Martha's running around like a chicken with her head cut off trying to serve everybody and Mary's sitting there at Jesus' feet as if she's one of his disciples and Martha's going, Jesus, tell her to help. And Jesus is like, why would I take the, she's chosen better, she's chosen to be with me. Why would I take that from her? Just relax. So we know about them and it might seem as if they were just momentary characters but here's what we learn here at the beginning of chapter 11. These gals and their brother Lazarus were much more involved in Jesus' life than we might realize. What it seems to be, and probably is true, is that Mary and Martha's home, which was about a mile and a half outside of the walls of Jerusalem, was Jesus' home base whenever he was away from home. Whenever he he traveled from Galilee down to Jerusalem, He would stay in their home, and Martha, the consummate hostess, would always take care of Jesus and his disciples. Mary would be right there. Lazarus would come and hang out. Jesus knew them. He had relationship with them. And so naturally, when Lazarus is on his deathbed and he doesn't seem to be getting better, their first thought is, go tell Jesus. Go let Jesus know that Lazarus is sick. But listen to the way in which they tell Jesus. Listen to the message, because they... they point to somebody say hey you go find Jesus and tell him this and this is the message they say in verse 3 the sister sent word to Jesus Lord the one you love is sick that's the entirety of the message to Jesus now it might seem a little surprising in its brevity but as I've been sitting with the message they sent to Jesus there's a couple of things that I really appreciate the first one is what they don't say what they could have made the message. They could have said something like this, Jesus, you know how many times we've put you up in our house? Well, Lazarus is sick. Or they could have said something like, hey Jesus, the one who loves you is sick. Almost kind of implying, because of the way Lazarus feels about you, come on dude, it's time for you to put up. It's time for you to come down here and take care of business. But they don't do either of those things as if they can somehow manipulate Jesus into responding. Instead, all they can do is point to how Jesus feels about Lazarus. The one you love is sick. And I love this because it's a reminder to us that we cannot twist the arm of God to respond in the way that we would want. God, look at all the times that I've gone to church even when I would rather watch a football game. God, look at all the times that I put money into the bucket even when I needed it for something I wanted to do. God, think of all the times I've served somebody else and didn't even take credit on social media. Come on, show up for me. Or God, look at how well I love you. I mean, I even stand up sometimes during worship. Come on. But none of those things are what ultimately move God to act for us. The only thing that we can grab hold of when we find ourselves in a moment where life seems to be falling apart, the only thing that we can point to is the way that God feels about us. And thankfully, he's shown us how he feels about us because he sent Jesus to die in our place. That's how much he loves us. And so we are reminded, as with these gals, that we cannot force God's hand as if all of our good works and all of our showing up and even showing up on time is like coinage that we can then drop into some cosmic vending machine that then gives us what we want. God is the one who moves towards us because of how he feels about us, not because of how we feel about him. And that's an important reminder for us. We move on. When Jesus heard the message that Lazarus was sick, he said, you know what, before I get there, there's a couple of assumptions that I want us to acknowledge. Because here's the thing, the gals were not trying to manipulate Jesus to act. However, they expected Jesus to act. They expected that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he would want to do something about it. And this was built off of several assumptions that they were making about Jesus and about life. The first assumption they were making is that Jesus cared about it and that he could do something about it that if he knew, he would respond and he would have the ability to actually heal Lazarus. That was one assumption. Another assumption that they made was that The sickness was outside of God's desire that this would not be something that Jesus would want to be the case if he knew about it, that he would want to undo it. And thirdly, and this is a huge assumption, is that if Jesus gets there in time, he'll be fine. But if Jesus does not get there in time and Lazarus dies, that's it. All hope will be lost. That's the assumption that they were carrying into this. And yet here's the thing that we're going to learn. With Jesus, hope is never lost. But We need to work a little bit more before we get there. Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, and this is where he begins to pick away at some of the the false assumptions that they were carrying into this. The first assumption is that this is outside of God's allowance, that God doesn't want this. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, this is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So it's not that God made Lazarus sick or wanted him to die. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, even this can be used to glorify God, to advance God's purpose and His plan for me. So this isn't as awful and terrible and senseless as it might seem on the surface. I'm thinking of my mother-in-law's broken hip. I'm thinking about infections that send people to the ER. I'm thinking about cancers that cause friends of mine to have to carry around oxygen tanks. The the stuff that seems so senseless, God can make sense of and redeem even that. Now, Jesus does affirm one thing, and that's the way that he feels about Lazarus. But not just Lazarus, but his sisters. Because John says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So yes, Jesus loves them. Yes, Jesus loves them. But the love he feels for them is much deeper than the love that they lay claim to. And this is lost on us in our English translations because in English we have one word for love, love. But in Greek, there are multiple, there are four words for love. And two of those words are employed in this exchange. When Martha sends word to Jesus that the one he loves is sick, she uses the word for brotherly love, phileo. The one you phileo, the one you consider a brother, is sick. When John says that Jesus loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus, the word he uses is agape divine, selfless love, the kind of love that would send him to the cross for us. That's the depth of his love for them. So yes, he loves them, but far more deeply than they will even lay claim to. And I would say the same to us. We may think God thinks fondly of us like a father to a child, but he loves us more deeply than we could ever possibly fathom. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And because of that, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. It's like where's the sense of urgency, Jesus? Right? Don't when I hear that my mother-in-law has hurt herself, the thought isn't let's give it a few hours and we'll we'll go check on her, right? When when somebody is sick, In the hospital, we don't think, ah, I'll go check on him in a couple of days. No, it's like, I want to see him now. I don't want to wait. One of the reasons COVID was so hard is those of us who had loved ones in the hospital, we couldn't be there with them. And yet, Jesus, who agapes Lazarus, chooses to wait two more days. And you might be thinking, okay, so did Jesus want Lazarus to die? Did Jesus' waiting cause Lazarus to die? I might not be as good at math as my son Ethan is. But I do know that four, which is the amount of days that he was in the tomb, minus two, which is the amount of days that Jesus waited, equals two. Which suggests to me that even if Jesus had left the moment he heard and made that one-day trip to see Lazarus, Lazarus would have already been dead for two days. Jesus' waiting did not kill Lazarus. In fact, if you do the math, it's likely that Lazarus was already dead by the time that Jesus heard. And Jesus, knowing all things because of the Holy Spirit kind of speaking to him, he already knows this fact. He already knows that there's nothing he can do to get there in time to keep Lazarus from tasting physical death initially. And so he chooses to wait two more days. Why? One of the things that rabbis taught in that particular day, and this isn't biblical, but this was something that rabbis taught, is that a person's spirit upon death would hover around the body for about three days, hoping to find a way to get back into the body. But once decay set in around day four, the spirit would depart. So the fact that Jesus chooses to wait two additional days in order to get there when Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days suggests that Jesus, although he doesn't ascribe to the, the spirit hovering on the bo- around the body, he knows that that's a belief. And so in order to kind of elevate the power of the miracle that he is going to do in raising Lazarus from the dead, he chooses to wait. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, hey guys, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to that place where where the last time I was there, I made the leaders so upset that they were looking for an excuse to stone me to death. (laughs) Jesus' disciples balk at this idea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you to death, and yet yet you're going to go back? This is not a good idea. And Jesus basically responds, listen guys, I've got, whenever God says to go, you go. Aren't there 12 hours of daylight? If God is saying do it, then do it. One of the best, one of the best bits of advice I ever got from a, a mentor of mine was don't question in the darkness what you've been told by God in the light. In other words, if God tells you to do something in a moment where you're at peace and then the world starts going crazy, don't begin to question when the world is going crazy what he told you in the light. Aren't there 12 hours of daylight? You're with me. And God is telling me to do this, so we're going. We don't have to be afraid of the darkness. The darkness is coming. But if you're with me, We have got to obey the Father regardless of the cost of it. After he said this, he went on to use a euphemism. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they, of course, misunderstand him like everybody else does. Well, if he's asleep, then he'll get better, right? Because whenever you guys get sick, that's what we do, right? We sleep it off. Jesus finally comes straight out and says in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you might believe. But now let's go to him. Let's go see him. Isn't it interesting that Lazarus's death and what Jesus is going to do even through that painful moment will be for the benefit of those who are walking with Jesus. And I would suggest to you that even when somebody's journey comes to a tragic end, like my friend's friend who took his life this week, or when... Somebody who has been valiantly fighting against cancer succumbs to that cancer. God can redeem even that, but sometimes the redemptive aspects of it aren't for the person themselves, but for their family and those around them. I can't tell you how many times I've done a memorial service. That's not for the person who has passed away. If they know Jesus, that person is out of pain. It's for those who have been left. And I have a mentor of mine. I've shared this once before. I have a mentor of mine who confessed to me that he preferred to do memorial services over weddings, which seems really backwards, right? But he said this, he says, listen, at a wedding, nobody is thinking about their mortality. Everybody is thinking about how wonderful life is, and they have all of these romanticized views of life. But at a memorial service, at a funeral, everybody is reminded of their own mortality, and so the the, soil of their heart is more open to the seeds of the gospel of truth. That's a powerful truth there. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, listen, guys, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus passed away so that you can see the power of God at work so that your faith will grow exponentially. This is for your good, not just for the the family of Lazarus. Then Thomas whom we know is doubting Thomas, right? This is one of Jesus' disciples. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, well, let's also go so that we might die with him. Can you hear the resignation in his voice when he says that? If Jesus is so dead set on walking right into the mouth of the lion, if Jesus is so dead set on dying, let's go with him. I got to say, what, what Thomas lacks in faith in Jesus he makes up for his commitment to Jesus, right? Like Thomas may not trust that Jesus can do what he says he can do, but he's willing to die right alongside of him. For that, I got to give him credit because I anticipate I'm going to meet him at some point. So, sorry for doubting you. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Decay has begun. Tomb is starting to stink. All hope is lost, at least from the perspective of Martha and Mary and all of the people from that region. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. We'll talk a little bit more about what's going on there next week, but here's the point that I want you to recognize today. Jesus could not slide in under the radar and be secretive about him showing up, because there's people from Jerusalem that are there that are going to see this happen. It's not going to be secretive. And in a lot of ways, this is going to light the wick that will ultimately lead to Good Friday, that will lead to Easter Sunday, and to the end of the gospel message of Jesus rising from the dead. But we're not there yet. But this is the beginning of the end game. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. This isn't because Mary was angry at Jesus. This is because Martha, as the older sister, was the consummate host. And so Jesus is showing up. And here's here's what I appreciate about Jesus. Jesus knows he's bringing a gaggle of people with him. He knows he's got a couple of sisters that in their home is probably already overrun with a bunch of people there to mourn and grieve the loss of Lazarus. Him showing up with this gaggle is not going to be loving to Martha or Mary, so he kind of stays outside of town waiting. When Martha hears he's there, she comes to him in her own timing, which is right away, okay? So I think even in that, it was kind of loving. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't bringing the whole crew to overrun the house. When Martha heard though, she went out to see him, but Mary stayed at home. And now listen to Martha's response to Jesus. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There's a a grief there. There's a faith mixed with disappointment, a faith because Jesus, I believe that you could have saved him, but you weren't here. You didn't save him. And in her mind, that's it. All hope is lost. But again, with Jesus, hope is never lost. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Maybe there's like a hope underneath it, like, could you do even more than I believe? And Jesus responds to her because Jesus uses this opportunity to challenge an assumption that Martha is carrying around in her heart. And that is that death is final, that death gets the last word. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again on the resurrection at the last day. So Jews, at least some of the Jews, believed that there would be a bodily resurrection in the end of times. This was actually a a theological perspective that split the Jews. There was... The Sadducees and the Pharisees teaching. The Sadducees taught there is no resurrection from the dead. And that's why they tended to be much more nationalistic. That's why they tended to be willing to compromise and partner with Rome. Because they had to live their best life now. Because that's all we got, baby. And then there were the Pharisees who taught, no, there's a resurrection from the dead. And so they were far less willing to, to compromise and to... To, to work with the Roman occupiers because they were looking forward to the resurrection of God's kingdom and the resurrection of their bodies. There is hope beyond the grave. And this is what Martha holds on to in this moment. I know that he'll rise again in the last time, in the last days. I, I, I have hope, but it's hope for another day. It's hope deferred. Now listen to this, because this is as far as we're going to get in the story today. We're going to have to pick it up next week. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never truly die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The story continues. Martha responds, and and then other fun stuff happens. We're not going to go beyond this because I really want to dig down deeply into what Jesus has just said. This is one of many I am statements. Remember when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am. Who should I tell people sent me? Tell them I am has sent you, and that I am was transliterated into Yahweh, which when it was brought into the English language was pronounced Jehovah, and this has become the name that we know for God. Yahweh, I am, Jehovah. All the same word, just in different translations. And so when Jesus says, I am, fill in the blank, he is pointing back to his divinity and and saying something about himself, and he's done this a bunch of times. I am the good shepherd. I am living water. I am the bread of life. But now he drops perhaps the most powerful, the most audacious claim, the most most powerful I am statement that he's going to make in all of John's gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will have life even though they die. And if they have life in me, they will never truly die. Now, on its surface, that might be interpreted as if Jesus is simply saying, I'm the source of that resurrection that you look forward to. Because I'm going to die on the cross. And again, they didn't know this was going to happen, but Jesus did. Because of the cross, you can have hope that even when your loved one passes away, you'll see him again. And that is hope in the midst of our grief, for sure. But guys, what I want to suggest to you today is that what Jesus is saying to Martha and what Jesus is saying to us goes far deeper than just a hope deferred until the afterlife. So let me explain to you what he is saying, the gravity of that declaration that I am the resurrection and the life. In order to do that, though, we've got to back up in our minds all the way to Genesis, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way before sin came and jacked everything up. Do you remember what God said to Adam and to Eve about what would happen if they disobeyed him and ate the fruit from the tree that he said was off limits? What would the consequence be? This is the interactive portion of the the conversation. They would die, right? If you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And sure enough, they eat the fruit, but what doesn't happen? They don't drop dead in that moment. Later on, they do. This introduces physical death into God's good creation, but I would suggest in the moment that they ate that fruit, the moment they disobeyed, death entered into God's reality. But it was a spiritual death, not a physical death in that moment. And the spiritual death was a wedge that was driven between God, the creator, and the one whom he had created in his image. Adam and Eve and ultimately all of us. Sin separates us from relationship with God. And that is what the Bible refers to as death. Death is a severing of the relationship that God intends us to have with him. Eternal death when we die apart from Him and never kind of submit our lives back to Him and say, I want to have a relationship, eternal death is eternal separation from God. And that sounds like hell, doesn't it? That's what hell is, eternal separation from God. God has, this is a place that is eternally separated from Him, and that is eternal death. So the inverse of that, we would expect, would be that life is a restoration of the relationship that God created us to have with Him. Would you agree? I would too. That is actually what Scripture talks about life being. Life is not simply my body doesn't get sick and I don't get headaches and my, my body doesn't break down and I don't die anymore. Life as described in scripture, is actually a restoration of relationship. Let me show you just two passages of the many passages that this is made very clear. Can we throw John 17 up there? This is during a prayer that Jesus is praying on the night, bef- that, the night that he is arrested. He's praying in the upper room and he says, now this is eternal life, okay? He's going to define eternal life for us. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, what is eternal life? Knowing the Father and the Son. And and when we read the word know in Scripture, it is not just an intellectual assent that God exists. To know someone is is a very intimate thing. In fact, we read throughout Scripture that Adam knew his wife Eve. That's talking about the union that comes from a, a, a sexual connection, which is, for a married couple, probably the most intimate connection you get. We're talking about a commingling of lives. To know the Father and to know the Son is to have relationship with them. In the most intimate sense, Jesus, come into my life. Let's do life together. That's eternal life. Let's go to 1 1 John. <clears throat> So in 1 John uh, chapter 11, no, chapter 5, my, I'm telling you, my eyesight's going. I hit my 40s, truly is coasting down the hill right now, baby. All right, chapter 5. There's not even 11 chapters in 1 John. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. What is eternal life? It is not bodies that don't break down. It is not a a loss of fear of the grave. Eternal life is a restoration of the relationship that God created for you and for me. And yes, when Jesus returns and all that we read about in the end of Revelation kind of comes to pass and the new Jerusalem has come down to earth and we get to be with him eternally, that will be the best taste of that. But here's the thing, guys. If we take Jesus at his word, that he is the resurrection and the life, what he's saying is, you want to have life? You don't need to wait until the end of times and the resurrection in order to taste life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And if you come to me, then even now, you can taste eternal life. You can find that restoration. You can do life with God. And this is incredibly important for us. This is incredibly relevant to us because we still live in a broken, sin-warped world where random things like fireworks shot at your feet so you fall out and you break your hip happen. Where, Where relationships break down and where hearts break and we're people we love get sick when we get sick. And when we're faced with... Following Jesus does not insulate us from the brokenness of this world. But following Jesus means that we do not have to face the brokenness of this world alone. Do you remember the invitation that Jesus gave to pretty much everybody he interacted with throughout the Gospels? I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't. Pray this prayer. You can punch your ticket to heaven. And then you can go on living any way that you want. That's kind of the way that some have approached the gospel. Jesus is fire insurance. I I recognize that I've screwed up. That there's this separation between me and God. I don't like that. Because I don't like what that will mean if I die. So Jesus... I admit that I'm a sinner, come into my life, amen. And then we go on living any way that we want, but we punched our ticket, and now we don't have to worry about hell. Guys, that's missing the point, because what Jesus' invitation was, was follow me, walk with me, do life with me, learn from me, be shaped by our proximity, watch how I do it, then you do it the same way. And in that sense, you will be discipled. Some of you think that converting to Christianity is kind of, you know, kind of the regular Christ follower, and that discipleship is the special forces for those who are really, really in, and I've got news for you, that is not the case. A Christ follower is somebody who says, I'm going to follow Jesus even in the midst of the brokenness of this world, even when life doesn't go as planned, even when... I am discouraged because my best lay plans have now fallen in in, in tatters at my feet. The invitation of Jesus is, follow me, do life with me. And as we do that, as we begin to read about his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we begin to emulate his life. And that's why we're spending all this time. We're spending an entire year for the most part slowly working through John. Not because I am lacking other places we could talk about, but because we are trying to get as close to Jesus and and learn from him so like sandpaper, it can begin to shape our hearts to reflect more his heart. So that the the patina of this world that just naturally has warped us can begin to be peeled away so that we can reflect his heart better to all of the people that we're going to come into contact with as we go about our regularly scheduled lives. Guys, I am not going to suggest to you that saying yes to Jesus is going to insulate you from your bodies breaking down, from you getting sick, from the people that you love, maybe your kids going off the rails. It's not going to insulate you from you one day facing your own mortality. What I am going to suggest to you is that in saying yes to Jesus and allowing Him to enter, allowing His Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, to enter into your life and to begin to breathe new life into you, I'm going to suggest to you that that is a foretaste of life that is truly life. That's what we were created for. My mother-in-law, she's got a long road of recovery ahead of her. And as she sits in the recovery room today, Got a couple of, of rounds of, of physical therapy that she's going to be doing this afternoon. As she aches through that, she does not do so alone. She does not face this alone. The resurrection and the life is with her, even when we're not with her. The things you face, you don't have to face them alone. Brokenness will come. You will stumble, you will encounter obstacles in your life. You, it may be internal, depression, anxiety, heartache, addiction. It may be external, losing a job, getting um, you know, transferred, having somebody that you love you know, turn their back on you or tell you that they want nothing to do with you. Regardless of what we endure, Jesus invites us to walk with him and to face it with him, and that is a foretaste of eternal life. You don't have to wait until you're dead to taste it, and so as I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, I am going to read to you again the words that Jesus said to Martha, and I know that we're only halfway through this story. We'll finish it up next week. It's beautiful. It's also really interesting the way that some of the people respond to it, so I can't wait to get there, But let me finish with these words that Jesus said to Martha and he says to us and I'm going to ask you to to put yourself in Martha's sandals and ask yourself, how do I respond to this? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let me pray for us, because my guess is there are some of us in this room who have paid lip service to this belief, but your life, if you're really honest, doesn't reflect that. You say, I'm a Christ follower, but really you're following other things. Maybe what you're following is a path that's been laid out for you in a career arc. Maybe it was a path that was handed to you from a parent because you didn't want to let them down so you chose that path and now you find yourself locked into it. Or maybe the path you find yourself walking is one of what the world says you should be and so you keep trying to prove yourself to the world or to others or maybe even to yourself. Rather than following Him and and this morning my prayer is that this would be a good reminder to us that Jesus is not just the one who who went to the cross and died so that we don't have to go to hell. Jesus is our resurrected Lord who says, I want to walk with you and lead you and be your Lord. Every moment of every day, not just for the hour and a half that you're here at church, but every moment of every day. And as you walk with me, through the good times and through the painful times the world will not help but be able to see the reflection that my presence in your life gives off and they will be drawn to me in you not to you but to me in you will you allow me to use you as a reflector in the light in the night so that others will come and find you let me pray for us because this is what it means to be a Christ follower father god i am grateful that you have the power over sin and the repercussion of sin, death. I'm grateful that when we, our, our, our most ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, disobeyed you and turned their back on you, you did not turn your back on us. That you have not given up on us, but that you pursued us to the point where you sent Jesus your divine word through which you spoke the world into existence to take on flesh and to walk amongst us and to give his life for us, I thank you that you have shown the depth of your love through that single act. And you, the one who has taken a torturous tool of the Roman government to kill people and turned it into a beautiful symbol of victory over death and of your grace, if you can redeem the cross in that way, just think of the way you can redeem the brokenness of this world and the brokenness in our own lives. So Father, we, your kids, made in your image, hold our, our lives out to you right now and simply say, help yourself to me. Take the stuff that is admirable and the stuff that's not so admirable. And I pray that you would use it to glorify yourself. I pray that you would meet us right where we're at and invite us into a deeper relationship with you. Because that's what eternal life is. The life that you created us for is relationship with you. May we not wait until we die to taste that. May we live out of it now so that regardless of what we face, we do not face it alone. But we face it in the power of your presence in our life not so that we can deny the brokenness of this world, but so that we can live as ambassadors of hope in the midst of it. For others who are watching our life, may our lives be a testament to your power to transform lives. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey guys, we are gonna go into a time of response right now. There's gonna be a couple of songs that we're going to sing. I am not asking you to pretend to feel anything. But I am saying, if you would like to respond, whether that be there's space up here, if you just want to come and kneel down and have some quiet time with God, or if you just want to sit and have that conversation in the chair that you're in, that's fine. If you want to stand up, that's fine. If you want to go to the back, Jeff's back there. I'll be up here. If you want prayer, come and find one of us. But may we actually respond rather than simply listening to other people respond in this time. Let's worship together.
1: Be still There is a healer And his love Is deeper than the sea His mercy Is unfailing And his arms a fortress for the weak. Let faith arise. You are f- washes over me strength is failing the end draws near and my time
0: couple of things uh, first if you have carried something in with you today it's like a prayer request that this is a burden to you that we can pray with you for first off please don't leave without coming and asking for prayer We would love that opportunity. But secondly, in the seat back in front of you are some places where you can let us know how we can be praying for you or if you want to get involved with something like a life group or or you want to be baptized or you have questions that today is stirred up and you'd like to talk to us. Please let us know because we live for that. Pastors only work half a day a week otherwise and we need an excuse to fill out the rest of that time. So please, talk to us, right? Secondly, I hope to see many of you on Friday night from 4 to 9 p.m. down at the beach. Okay, it's in Huntington Beach. Uh, It's where Brookhurst kind of dead ends right into Huntington Beach there at Tower 3. That's where we're going to be. Please come and spend some time with us. Uh, Thirdly, if if you're looking for a reason to get involved, you, you just go, you know what? I would like to invest some of my time in loving on other people. Tim O'Meara, right here, right in the middle, wearing the blue shirt. He got the memo today. Good job, Tim. Um, he's going to be in the foyer. You can ask him how you can get involved, and I'll tell you one very tangible, one very important way you can get involved. Loving on our kids across the street one Sunday a month. Man, it is, it is the, that is a, an act of service that will actually help pour jet fuel on your own growth because you will not believe some of the questions our kids will ask that will challenge your own faith, all right? With that, if you have prayer requests, you can drop those in the, in the white boxes in the back. If you have a, a financial gift that you want to give, tithes, offering, those can go in there as well. And now, just the way that I'd like to close today is really simple. I keep coming back to the ways that Martha said, Jesus, the one whom you phileo, the one who you consider like brotherly love, he's dying. And the way that John reminds us that Jesus' love for us is far more than that kind of friendship love. It's that agape love. And so let's close today with the faith of children that declares that Jesus loves us so much so that he showed us in the most powerful way possible by giving his life for us. Let's sing a song you and I grew up knowing if you grew up in the church. And that's just Jesus loves me. Can we do this? I... Let's see what octave we started. Ready?
1: Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me
0: so. There is a freedom that comes from knowing that you are loved because you don't need to look to anybody else to tell you that you're okay. He has declared to you in the most emphatic way, I love you. So now live out of the freedom of that love and don't be afraid to love others out of the depths of that. Have a wonderful week. Love you guys.